Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that the work that Christ did to free the believer from the power of sin was final and never needs to be repeated. Today, we'll finish seeing what this means for the believer and what the Christian's responsibility is to this truth. All right, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 6. So we want to read uh, chapter 6. I would like to read from verse number 8 down to verse number 11. And uh, our text will mainly be verse number 11. But I think it's important that we deal with some parts of uh, verses 8 to 11. Let's read from verse number 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, to Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. And then notice verse number 14. He says, for sin shall not have what? Dominion. And that word dominion comes from the Greek word kratos, which means power or force or strength. See? It no longer has that power over you as a believer. And then in verse uh, number 16 and 15, he says, Know ye not that ye yield your members, uh, servants to obey his servants you become. In other words, we no longer have to become slaves to sin. The Apostle Paul is saying to you that these are four things that should be true of a believer. My question to you this morning, are these things true of you? Because when we read scriptural passage like this, if we find that it goes against the grain of what is happening in our lives, we rationalize. It must mean something else. And that is why this passage is so vitally crucial for us as believers. And the point is that the reign and the tyranny of sin in our lives is over because the old man is dead, but also we have this new life. We share in this resurrection life because of our union with Christ. And I repeat this. It's the only way to help people to really deal with their problems. And when I say the problem, I mean the non-organic problems. I want to repeat that. If 
what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 6 is true. The only means of truly helping people deal with their non-organic problems is Christ. Now let me, let me show you that. Look, when, a doc, when, I, when I have a physical problem, the person I should go to is a doctor. It's an organic problem. He's been trained in medicine to use all kinds of medicines to help me. All kinds of therapies to help me. But if I have a problem that's not an organic problem, I, the doctor can't help me. And that is why I don't understand uh, why Christianity has surrendered. Surrendered to what I call psychology and the psychologists. Because it is these people we look to to solve every other problem the doctor can't solve. But they can't help. They can't tell the person how to have sin broken in their life and the power of sin broken in their life. All they can do is give medication. Look, outside of organic problems, physical problems, every other problem that you will face and I will face, Christ is the answer. Let me show you. If you've got a noetic problem, you know what a noetic problem is? a mind problem. You keep thinking the same thoughts again and again. You have uh, pornographic pictures in your mind all the time. You, you go to a psych, how is he going to help you? Your mind needs to be renewed. Where do you get that program of renewal? It's in God's word. Be renewed in your mind. If you don't have a noetic problem, you have an emotional problem. How is a psychologist going to help you with an emotional problem? And when I talk about emotional problem, by the way, I'm talking about anxiety. I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about being distraught and not having hope in your life. How is he going to help you? Christ will help you. When you have relational problems... What better source of dealing with relational problems than what God has revealed in his word? Remember the first the commandments. The first four has to do with your relationship with God. The other ones have to do with your relationship with man. So if you're looking for pro- uh, answers to your problems outside of Christ that are relational, it's a myth. See. What about the matter of moral problems? What is right and wrong? Which psychologist is better able to counsel you than Christ himself as to what is right or wrong? He knows what is right and wrong. When you have ethical problems, how to behave. The entire New Testament is about how Christians ought to behave. So whether you have a noetic problem, an emotional problem, or a behavioral problem, or a moral problem, or maybe you have an ethical problem, or you have a, a spiritual problem. Where else do you turn to but Christ? You know, the point I'm making here this morning, and it's an irony of our times, that the church has surrendered to psychology to deal with issues that God has equipped us to deal with in his word. I looked at the uh, dogma the other day, the, the, uh, the statistics the other day, there are now over 200 different types of psychotherapies. And by the way, if they're over 200, how you know which one will work? See? If you're a psychoanalyst, you've got Freud, if you've got Watson, you've got uh, behaviorism, etc., you've got, uh, you know, cognitive therapy. All, all, all of, these are theories. All of them are theories. 
And the reason why you got 200 of them because they don't have a solution to the problem. I want to ask you a, a question here this morning, a fundamental question. And I want you to give me a mental answer, not to give me a, 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 a physical answer this morning. But think of these issues that I'm going to mention here. Tell me if Christ is not the better answer to these questions. For example, what about the question of meaning in life? See, uh, who can you go to outside Christ to really find real meaning in life? What about purpose? Why are you here? See, where, where best can you understand what your responsibilities are in terms of your purpose here in life? What about origins? Where it came from? See, who am I? What better answer to find that in Christ? What about worth? Am I worth anything? You know, I was abused when I was a child. I've been treated this way by my grandparents and my uncles and my aunties. I don't feel like, I feel like a zero with the edge runner. I feel like snot. How do I regain my sense of worth? Who can deal best with that question of worth? Eh? What about Significance. Does it matter to me in life? Am I going to leave a mark in life? What do I do to become a significant person? I feel I'm contributing something meaningful. I'm saying to you that all the major problems that we face in life, the answer is found in Christ and Christ alone. What about love? Who best to answer the, the, the question of what really love is and how love ought to operate? What about fear and phobias? What better person to answer that? What about forgiveness? How do I forgive that person? What's the basis of my forgiveness? Give me a reason to forgive them. Again, what better answer than the fact that Christ has forgiven you again and again and again because of your forgiveness, you know to pardon somebody else. There's no other rationale for it. What about hurt? How to deal with hurt when you've been unjustly treated? Is there a better person to come before Christ and look at what he went through for us, all the injustice he suffered? See, he understands your pain in this matter. What about the family and the home? What that should be? Who do you turn to outside the Christ and his word? What about security and want to feel secure? Can you get greater security? than? And then what about hope? Or anxiety, or depression, or guilt, or sin, or relationships, or responsibility, or alienation. That's a common term today. That I feel as though I'm, I'm in a universe and I'm lost in the universe. How can I get connected again? The only answer is found in Christ and Christ alone. The point I'm making here this morning is that the finality of Christ's work that liberates me and frees me and emancipates me that Paul certifies in this chapter, frees me from this dominating control and mastery and tyranny of sin. And I have, can have victory in Christ. And because I have that victory in Christ, I can now share that victory with others. There's no other solution to the problem. I don't even think that you fully, people fully understand the glory of the Christian faith. And the fact that in Christ we've got the answers the world is looking for. Because we don't believe that. We turn to other sources. Broken cisterns of this world. 
I was talking to somebody this week, and uh, I had to remind them very pastorally that the answers to every human problem basically is we must not lose sight of the fact that it is found in Christ. So when a man is dealing with death, who best to counsel him? You tell me. What can he say? God just tell a man that is, is going to face death. And knowing he got ten, uh, six months to live or three weeks to live. Which psychologist can better counsel than a, a person with the word of God and bringing Christ to that person? You tell me. And by the way, these are things that really matter, you know, most in life. See? And that's why I say to you that the fact that Christians have surrendered that area to these people because of their jargon and because of their terminology. We have sold our birthright for a pottage of red soup. We are almost like Esau when it comes to our Christian faith. We have forgotten what we have in Christ. So we look into avenues of answers that God looks down at us and says, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Look what my, Christ, my son has done. This is final and complete. And this is where you leave him to go to these broken cisterns? It's the tragedy of our times. It's the irony of our times. The Apostle Paul wants us to know that this work of Christ, there's a finality to it. There's nothing outside of Christ that man has come after Christ that can provide the answer that Christ has provided. No one can help man more than Christ can help man. And that work was done once and for all at the cross. He's not a dead Christ, he's a living Christ. And his power is operative in our lives. We share in that resurrection power. This is what Paul is asserting here. The finality of it. Christ died once unto sin. And by the way, it doesn't say he died to sin. Because sin was never operative unless you can't die to sin. It doesn't say he died for sin in this passage either. Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 3 verse uh, 22 to 5 verse 11. He's here dealing with the whole matter of sin as a reigning monarch over our lives. Christ came into this world where sin was reigning as a monarch in control. Then he died and broke the power of that monarchy. We now share in that. That's what it means. The same way he died unto the reign of sin and the control of sin. He's saying the same thing happened to you. You have died unto sin, not to sin or for sin. You can never die for that. But you've died unto, unto the reign of sin. You know the problem with people when they've been living a certain way for so long and then they hear something different? It's very hard now to penetrate those layers that have been there for such a, such a long time. Because some of you are probably sitting here, but if that is true, how come that all these years, this is the way I've been living? Pastor, if you only know what I did after I became a Christian. I'm hearing what you're saying, but if what's happening to me is what you're... Why did it happen? Let me make a suggestion to you, see? The truth sets you free. And if you did not grasp this truth before, you could not apply that truth before. So what has happened is this, you are operating on a purely human level. It is when truth hits you and you begin to understand the truth that the power of sin is broken. 
Never is it broken until the truth, you get hold of that truth, you understand that truth. That's why Paul keeps saying, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. We know this. But if we don't know it, we can't operate at the same level. And that may very well be your problem. You thought you had to do this job. You didn't understand what really happened in your life. So that when sin operated on the same basis that you didn't have, it's like, you, it's like God had a secret code that once you found that code, you will never operate this level. But what happened that that code was hidden from you. So he operates for you on the same level again and again. And you keep yielding, keep yielding, keep yielding. I think I've used the illustration before. And I cannot think of a better illustration to use it again here this morning. Many of the slaves that were freed in America when the Emancipation Act was read, many of those slaves, because America is a big country, it's not like in Antigua, if you spit one side, it goes to the other. It's a very small country. You can go around this country in one day. America, you can spend days and you can't, I don't have to tell you that story, but many of those people that were in bondage never heard the news. So what do you think the master did? He kept dealing with those people as though they were still slaves. And they kept acting as though they were still slaves. So he kept doing everything the master said because as far as they were concerned, they were still slaves. But the day they heard that they were no longer slaves, the master said, do that. He said, oh, me? You no longer own me, man. i free. It's the knowledge that emboldened them now to stand up to the master and say, nah, that's not going to happen again. And I'm saying to you that this knowledge is what we need. This truth is what we need to say to the, di- the, the devil. It is written. The devil came to our Lord and said, you know, you're hungry. You've been here for 40 days and 40 nights. You're doing a spiritual thing, but look at you. He's going to let you die. You believe that this God that you uh, come out here for the 40 days and 40, to meet with, you believe that this God has not provided anything for you? <laughs> so what I'm saying to you now, Turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. The temptation is very, very real. But what did the master say? It is written. He uses the truth of God's word to counteract the falsehood of Satan. See? Because the Bible not only tells us we must eat. The Bible says we must not live by bread alone, but by every word. See? But he had to go through every temptation. He brought the truth of scripture to bear upon the tempter, to put the tempter to flight. Had to run. And I think that's what we need to do as God's people. We have to understand the finality of the work of Christ and the cross and what it means in terms of victory of living. We must not surrender that truth. And until we embrace that truth and understand that truth, we will always be living at level one and never come to level two. The second thing I want to deal with very quickly this morning is not only talking about the finality of this matter, but also what we call the responsibility that we have in light of this matter. Look at what he says in chapter 6 and verse 11. He said, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the turning point in the chapter. This is the point where the Apostle Paul is now talking about the application of that truth. 
He's been expounding the truth and he keeps repeating the truth in different forms. But now there's a change where he's putting the responsibility on the believers to act on the basis of the truth that he's been teaching. So what he's calling upon these believers is to realize this truth, embrace this truth, and start living by this truth. So he's letting us see that we have a responsibility to begin to make this truth part of our experience. And the first thing he says to the believers is reckon also yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto God, but alive uh, into sin, but alive unto God? What does that mean? What does the word reckon mean? Well, let me give you the word that is used in the Greek language, and then you'll see what Paul is saying. The Greek word is the word legitimize. Okay. You see the word there, legitimize? You see the word logic in it? Where we get the word logic from? So what the Apostle Paul really is saying here, and by the way, if you go to Vine's New Testament word studies, uh, you'll find that Vine defines this word, uh, uh, reckon as to count, to compute, to conclude, or to deduce. That's how Vine puts it. It's a kind of a logical conclusion that you reach at the end of data or information that has been supplied. Because of this information, this truth, this data, I now come to this conclusion. These things that Paul has told me now lead me to this ultimate conclusion. And that's what Paul is saying. If what I have told you is true in Christ and true of you, this is the conclusion that you must come to, that you must recognize these things, embrace these things, and reckon these, count these things to be so. By the way, this uh, particular word in chapter 4 is a word that Paul repeats again and again in chapter 4. If you just look there for just a moment, uh, in Romans chapter 4, when Paul is dealing with the whole question of uh, justification, he uses a word here again, count, 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 or reckon, reckon, reckon. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He says, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him. You see the word counted there? It's the same word reckoned. Same word, same identical word. Look at verse 6. Even as David also described the blessed man unto whom the God imputeth. See the word imputeth? It's the same word there, reckon. You can change that word and put the word reckon. It's the identical word. Look at verse 8. Blessed the man to whom the Lord will not impute. Reckon is the word there again. Every time is the word reckoned. When you take, go home, get your concordance, your strongs, your young, and check the word up. You see, it's the same word that's used again and again. Reckon. Look at verse 9. Come of this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was what? Reckoned. Reckoned. Look, it's found in verse 10, it's found in verse 11, it's found in verse 22, it's found in verse 23, it's found in verse number 24. And it's either con- uh, re- um, translated, counted, or imputed, or reckoned. But I believe the best definition of how Paul uses it is found in chapter 3 and verse 28. Look at chapter 3 and verse 28 where he uses the word again. He said, therefore we what? We what? Conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds 
of the Lord. And remember what Paul is dealing in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is arguing that justification is a result of faith apart from the deeds of the law. He argues that in chapter 3. Now in chapter 3, verse 28, he says, after giving all of that, he summarizes what the conclusion. Here is the conclusion. A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It's the same word there. What the Apostle Paul is saying, therefore, in this chapter 6, he is doing something similar to what he did in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is dealing justification. In chapter 6, he's dealing with the breaking of the power of sin over the believer's life. And he's been using logical statements and arguments. And the same way in chapter 3, as a result of logical statements and arguments, the believer concludes this. He's now saying, listen, this is the conclusion you should come to. It's the only conclusion that you must reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive unto God. In other words, what happened to Christ happened to you. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. In this. So you need to activate this faith. I want to say, I want to make something here stated. This is not the psycho heresy of what is called positive confession. In other words, you know what what positive confession is, right? I'm not feeling well today. So they tell me if I want to get well, every day I must keep saying to myself, I'm getting better and better every day. I'm getting better and better. I must keep repeating that to myself. I'm self-talking. I must get better and better every day. They tell me that I keep repeating that all the time. It's called positive confession. I will feel better. That's psychology. That's not what Paul is talking about here. See? Paul is saying, settle in your mind that this happened and by faith, claim it and act upon it. Let me use an illustration here for just a moment. What we need to do is exactly what Abraham did in chapter 4. You remember in chapter 4, I'm not going to go through that again, the Lord uh, told Abraham when he was 100 years old and his wife was 90 years old, he said to Abraham, Sarah is going to give you a son. You're going to have a son through Sarah. Now he's 100, she's 90. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were 100 years old and your wife was 99 years old, and I came to you and tell you that your, your, your wife would give you a son, what would you do? You would laugh me to, you would, you would, you would, you would laugh so much, you would, Pastor Murphy, you've gone berserk, you're mad, you're crazy. See? And the problem is about that because you've been, tra- you've been trying all these years from the time you got married until you're 100 and she's 99. Uh, you're 99, now she's, you're 100, she's 90. And all these years you've been trying, no children. But now I come out to the clear and say, listen, I tell you next year, she's going to give you a child. Well, I know one or two things you'll tell me. Well, uh, you probably would probably call uh, somebody down at the mental asylum and say, listen, I got a pastor, but I think he's gone berserk. He's really gone beyond this one. I think he needs some help, right? I think... If I told you that, that's probably the response. And I would not be surprised if that's the response either because I'm just a man. But imagine this. Imagine God came down in your bedroom and you are aware that this is God. And God says to you, look, I know you're 100. I know she's 90. But I, God, tell you that next year she's going to give you a child out of her womb. Now, the, the picture changes, doesn't it? 
It's not a man saying that to me. No, it's not God saying to me. And you know what Paul is saying? That's the same thing you need to understand. What I have revealed to you in chapter 6 is what God has revealed for me to share with you. So the same way Abraham took hold of something that didn't make any sense to him, that was totally irrational, a biological impossibility, the same way he took hold by faith and believed and staggered not at the promise, but was persuaded. Paul is saying we need to take that same type of faith to the truth I've revealed to you and believe it and reckon this to be so, count it to be so, and act on it. I have said this, and I might need to say, it's not, the problem today is not what we know. That's not the problem. The problem is that we don't have the faith to make what we know works. It's an intellectual exercise with us that we can regurgitate these things and speak these things. But to make them a reality is our biggest problem. And that's what Paul is calling upon the believers here uh, in this matter, to, to see that this is what God has revealed and to reckon these things to be so, count these things, or deduce, deduce that these things are so, see, as a believer. And then the other thing that Paul talks about in this passage uh, notice carefully, it's not only that we need to reckon these things to be so, but there's something else that uh, the Apostle Paul deals with uh, in this passage. Go back to, and notice the next expression that we have there in chapter 6 and verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves. I want to look at that expression, ye yourselves, for just a moment. What's he referring to? The Apostle Paul is talking about your essential personality. Freud would say this, your ego. Who you are. He's referring to the person that God has made you differentiate from everybody else. It's your unique personality. And by the way, let me say this. Christianity does not obliterate your personality. It might transform your personality. It might refine your personality. It may enhance your personality. And it may enable your personality. But never eradicate your personality. You will always be you and I will always be me. There will be some things that, about me that are different, but you will always know this is David Murphy. I will always know that this is, this is Lisa George. See? She will always be Lisa George. I will always be David. My essential personality, it will never be eradicated. It may be transformed. It may be changed. I may become a sweeter David Murphy or better David Murphy, but I will still be a David Murphy. There will be things about me that defines me as David Murphy. And things that define you. Paul is saying here, in this particular passage, and therefore, uh, ye yourselves, your personality, see, consider that in this matter. It's not a matter of extent. He's calling upon our personal responsibility. See, Christianity does not absolve your responsibility. You have to make decisions. You have to reckon this. I can't reckon this for you. Then he said in verse number 11, reckon yourself as dead unto sin. And again, I want to repeat, he does not say that you're dead to sin. See? Reckon yourself dead unto sin. The same word that is used in relation to Christ. Christ did not die to sin because there was no sin in his life. So there's nothing to die to. Romans thought Christ died for sin in chapter 3 to verse chapter 5. 
But what Paul is dealing with is that he died unto the rule and the reign and the realm of sin. He came into the reign of sin where sin reigned and, and etc. And he completely defeated that realm. And he took you out of that realm and put you in a new realm called the kingdom of God in Christ. And Paul is saying to you, consider this to be a truth that happened to you. Believe it by faith. And by the way, here is the problem. Paul is not talking about something that we experience when this thing happened. That's what our problem is. He's appealing to a truth that God has revealed about us. And he's asking you to take hold of that truth and believe that truth and, and act on it in your life. Believe it not because you have experienced it, but believe it because God has declared it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you were there when God made the world? Huh? How many of you were there when Christ was crucified? How many were there when the Bible was written? How many were there when Christ washed away our sins? How do you know that that is true? You know it's true because God has revealed it in his word and you acted on that. You know, a person was preaching and they told you that and you, you believe that. You claimed it. In the same way what Paul has revealed, he's saying claim this to be true. Act on it. Stop being defeated by sin. When the enemy comes and sin says, you know, you'll be, I want you to do this. You must do this. And he keeps banging again and banging again. Say to him, I am in Christ. I'm a new person. I'm not in your kingdom any longer. I'm no longer under your random control. He says to you, how do you know that? You said, it is written. You claim that. I'm saying this morning that you have died to sin. You're no longer under the domain and the realm of sin. And Paul is saying to you as a Christian, that's your responsibility. Take hold of this truth. Believe this truth that you believe when you got saved. Look, how many of you here felt when the Holy Spirit came into you? Huh? I'm serious. Question. Well, if you didn't feel anything, how do you know it happened? You only have one answer. God said in his word that when I get saved, he baptized me into his body and the Holy Spirit becomes my temple. Am I, am I wrong about that? Everything we do and we believe and we claim is based on the truth that he's revealed. So how come now when we come to chapter 6, we are so reluctant to believe that what God said happened to us really happened? And because there is this doubt in our mind, this skepticism about God's word, we can't enjoy the victory we can enjoy because it is faith that makes the victory possible. In other words, because you're not Abraham's and have the faith of Abraham, we cannot enjoy the benefits of this child. And that's where we are today to a great extent with people. I'm saying to you this morning, and I'm hoping that by repeating this again and again, the Bible says what? Faith comes how? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I hope you will have that eureka moment when it finally hits you. This is what I never understood. This is the truth I never grasped. 
Now I understand. It's like the slave going to the master and said, you can't make me do nothing. You can shout, you can scream, you can threaten me. But you see, I got this bill of emancipation and this is what counts. So all your screaming and all your noise and all your threats don't mean anything to me. See, this is what means. And this is the book of emancipation right here. The word. See? If you were to take these simple truths and uh, try to apply them to your life, I think you'll begin to enjoy the victory that you've always longed for but never able to, to have. See? It's not that you didn't mean well. It's not that you didn't have good intentions. The simple fact is you perhaps were not aware of what really happened to you when you put your faith and trust in Christ and the supernatural work that was done on your behalf that liberates you and frees you from this dominating, controlling power of this enslaving sin that we face every day. And Paul is saying to these believers, I want you to understand the power of habitual sin is broken in your life. Live in victory. I'm going to stop here and uh, I hope that in some measure we are getting a deeper understanding of this subject. You said, Pastor, you've been de- I, I know I've been dealing with it, but I'm dealing with it as Paul deals with it, not as I want to deal with it. But he saw it was important to deal with it stage by stage, step by step. And sometimes it needs to be repetition because we are so dull of hearing. So you came in here, you came in that you came in before. And you're probably sat there and listening. You're saying, you know what? A lot of what you're saying is true. This thing in my life is ruining my home. It's ruining my family. It's ruining me. I'm an old man. Now I'm getting an old man. And I'm getting an old person. And, I, and this thing is, I've got to get a handle on this thing. The answer is very simple. This is the truth you need to take hold of as a believer. And start living by. See, Believe God's word. Make it a part of your life. And you'll begin to experience the victory. The same way you're willing to leave that life before when you heard the gospel and, and turned to Christ. That now you've probably returned, want to return to it. You've probably actually returned to it. You've forgotten that you were purged of these things. And that these things should not dominate your life. Let's move from level one. Let's move to level two. See? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We've labored tediously to try to get this truth across. We've repeated it several times in the series so far. But we've just taken the Apostle Paul's teaching step by step, line by line, precept by precept. And we're trying to underscore areas that he added, like the finality of this work. Assuring us that no one or no teaching or no doctrine or no philosophy that could ever come after Christ could ever deal with the problem as he has dealt with it. He's dealt with it finally, once and for all. And then secondly, Lord, our responsibility. You remind us that we are personalities different and distinct from each other. And as personalities, we have to make decisions. We have to make choices. No one can have faith for us. No one can claim the truth for us. No one can embrace the truth for us. We ourselves have got to reckon these things to be so. Count these things. Deduce that these are the logical conclusion of what the Apostle Paul has been teaching. Oh Lord, work in our minds. Transform our minds. Strengthen our minds. 
and give us the victory that comes from the truth that liberates us. But we can only enjoy that truth as truth appeals to the mind. The mind comprehends that truth and then makes that truth applicable in the life. There's no other method out there. There's no other means than your means. There's no other wisdom greater than your wisdom. But your church has forsaken the living water and has gone after broken cisterns. The world has forsaken your way and has gone after broken cisterns. And what chaos we have out there. Bring us back to your truth, the centrality of your word and the importance of his teaching in transforming our lives and liberating us from the debilitating power and control of the tyranny of sin. May we see in this church believers who now live in victory and triumph. And as they live in victory and triumph, people begin to observe their lives and recognize something has happened. It's a change. That person that they met with, that person that they talked with, begins to realize that the conversation changes. The purpose for being there changes. It's no longer selfish ends. It's to speak truth to God, about God and to glorify God. A revolution begins to take place. This is what true, authentic Christianity is all about. But it's so little of it in the marketplace. Forgive us for our failings in this regard. Move us back to your truth. And give us the faith to believe your truth and apply your truth. And help us to once again believe that the disciples believe that Christ is the answer. And without him there are no solutions. May this be our strength, our wisdom, our stay. May this be the means of our changing not only ourselves, but changing those around us by using your truth. Thank you for the believers that are here this morning. And I ask you, Lord, to let this truth soak deep into their inner beings, into their souls, into their spirits. And in their sober moments, bring it back to their minds. Show them how it applies. And above all, show Christ and all of his glory. And give us a thankful hearts. Thankful hearts because of what he's done for us. We leave here this morning. And we leave here with a sense of hope sense of greater commitment to your truth and a sense that we return to the founding principles we want to embrace and we understand that central to all that we do is the element of faith that reckons these things to be so and acts upon them may we not be like Israel whose bones were bleached in the wilderness and the Bible says they could not enter because of unbelief. Because what they heard Moses said, they had no faith that was mixed with what they heard. So it did not benefit them. May that not be the sad story of your church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be sure to join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy continues our study of Romans chapter 6.
If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.